Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You know what my favorite text is? A Waypoint and the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey. The list on the Onyx Hunt app features for chasing turkeys is long, but knowing exact public and private boundaries and land ownership details will help you find more places to hunt, whether that's on public or private. I'll be toting the Hunt app through the spring woods in a few states this year, and I recommend you do the same if you want more turkeys on your table. Also, Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com hunt this spring. In that time, in those years, people were dying by the thousands. Death was just everywhere. Every family was touched directly by death. On this episode of the Bear Grease Podcast, we'll be looking into the life of a man whose legacy is wrought with conflict. To Americans who lived in the Ohio River Valley, he was a folk hero. But to the Native Americans he hated and murdered in cold blood, he was known as the Death Wind. I went to the Ohio Valley to interview outdoor writer and author Chip Gross to learn about the life of Lewis Wetzel. This dark, deep dive comes at the request of one Steve Ranella of Meat Eater, who is also a guest on this episode, and we'll talk about Wetzel's life and the brutality of the American frontier. Lastly, in an effort to understand the mind frame of Wetzel, I'll interview mental health professional Zach Newcomb to learn if our boy Wetzel was truly a sociopath, a serial killer, or were his actions simply the result of a life lived in a war zone. And yep, Zach's my brother. I doubt you're going to want to miss this one. And hey... I know a lot of you folks let your young kids listen to Bear Grease, which I absolutely love. But I'll warn you, in this episode, we talk about some pretty gruesome and graphic stuff. There was no guilt in his mind. There was no regret. It was just, I've got to do this. And he continued doing it basically until, until the day he died. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant. 
Search for insight in unlikely places and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. Well, in one of the, the stories that I've, I've written about him, I say if he were alive today, he would be labeled a serial killer, and he really would. But he hated Indians. He wasn't killing white people, but he was killing Indians. He would kill hostile Indians. He would kill you know, not hostile Indians. He just, he just hated them. And where I think this came from is when he was younger, when he was just 13 years old, he and his brother, who was 11, were taken captive by Wyandots. He later that night, he and his brother escaped, got back home, but he made a vow to himself when he was a kid that he would kill Indians anytime he could. And then later in life, one of his older brothers is killed by Indians. His father is killed by Indians. So he had a real vendetta there. The Shawnees uh, called him Long Knife, the Hurons called him Destroyer, and the Delawares called him Deathwind. There's a death wind coming, moving fast across the hill And he's been looking for the men who burn and kill Who burn and kill And when he's coming you can feel the death of chill And he won't stop blowing till there's peace And the night is still The night is still In the days of the settlers we struggled to survive Saw death and hunger and we fought to stay alive Came a man with a gun, he stung the violin He was a hero to the people, he was known as a devil wind The cultural impact of a frontiersman can often be gauged by if they have a musical ballad written about them. This is one from a band called The Backroads, called The Ballad of Lewis Wetzel. I love these old songs. And how about those backup singers? And I'll give you a digital fist bump if you've ever heard this one before. Lewis Wetzel is a controversial figure. And it's interesting to read about him, hear him sung about, and see him honored, and then go back into his life to try to make sense of it. Many Americans in his time viewed him as a hero, but to some he was a criminal, a murderer, a madman. But the confusion isn't surprising. The time period when the American frontier was being pushed into the middle ground, what is now Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, Heroes and madmen could easily be confused because of overlapping traits. Wetzel was by profession an Indian scout or Indian hunter, and he became known as the most effective Euro-American single combat fighter potentially ever. He was believed to have killed in one-on-one tussles as many as 100 Indians in his short 45-year life. He claimed to put a bit of silver in his bullet to protect him from Indians. Some of his killing was done on the clock, and some of it was done with a recreational flair. He took scalps with pleasure, but in doing so, protected his people, elevating him to a folk hero. There's a county and a wildlife management area named after him in West Virginia, along with multiple businesses, parks, and springs that still carry his name to this day. 
Born in 1763, Louis Wetzel and his family did some fighting in the Revolutionary War. It's also believed that Louis Wetzel served as a scout on the Lewis and Clark expedition in 1804. He served multiple prison sentences and escaped once in a coffin. The feller had quite the resume. If you've been following Bear Grease, you know that I'm prone to tell stories with crescendos of redemption. This one doesn't have one. It swoops low, arcing towards darkness. But lucky for us, darkness creates a context for light to be seen. And I think by looking at the roughest examples of a time period, it puts into context others that we've learned about, like Boone, who compared to Wetzel was the Billy Graham of the middle ground. He was a saint. Chip Gross, the first voice you heard on this podcast, has laid the foundations of what built Louis Wetzel. As a kid, he was taken captive by Indians, and later his father and brother were killed in a riverside bushwhack. Lewis made a vow that he'd kill every Indian he ever saw as long as he lived, and he proved to be a man of his word. If you recall, on the Mediator podcast, Steve Rinella made a public petition to get me to tell the story of Lewis Wetzel, which I agreed to do as long as he agreed to take to heart some friendly advice on how to blow a crow call. Here's Steve. Steve Rinella. How did you get connected and interested in the Wetzel brothers? I'll answer that, but first I want to thank you for doing this because I want to learn more. <laughs> I want to learn more about the Wetzels. I'm fascinated by them, even though I didn't know about them that long ago. I became aware of them in this way. I was interviewing a Daniel Boone historian. And in this, we were talking about how Daniel Boone was this, this very noble, ethical individual, somewhat of opportunistically pacifist mm-hmm. when he could yeah. be. He was a pacifist when he could be, Yeah, right? He was a, a friend of the Native Americans when he could be. Sometimes went out of his way to be that way. Talked remorsefully about taking an Indian's life unnecessarily, right? This historian, Ted Franklin Blue, then made a comment to me about some real bad dudes and mentions the Wetzel brothers. I didn't know who they were, but a buddy of mine, then text me, how the do you not know about the Wetzels? The Indians called him the Death Wind. Mm. And that's when I decided to start lobbying you <laughs> to do a thing about the Wetzels. You'll hear us throughout this referring to the Wetzel brothers. But the most famous Wetzel, and the one we're talking about the most, is going to be Lewis Wetzel. Lewis was born on a section of the Wilderness Road in West Virginia in 1763, wrapped in a Union Jack flag. His father and mother were on their way to Homestead on Big Wheeling Creek in the panhandle of West Virginia, 14 miles from the Ohio River. It seems your life is usually more exciting if you're from the panhandle of a state. Nine states have panhandles. That's not relevant. His father was considered by many to be reckless, or maybe just naive because of how far he settled from permanent white settlements. He was way back on the very edge of the frontier, and it was a time of great instability and constant guerrilla warfare between whites and Native Americans. The Wetzels ended up having seven children, and they had seven peaceful years before Wyandots burned their cabin and captured Lewis and his younger brother Jacob. Four of seven Wetzel children 
would be captured by Indians at one point in their life, and a couple of them got captured more than once. That's an incredible stat. Here's the story of Lewis's beginning, and you'll begin to see the inklings of the young Lewis's uncanny ability to navigate backwoods life. So in 1776, he and his younger brother, Jacob, who was 11, were kidnapped by Native Americans. They were working corn, and the boys had seen a black bear. They had reported seeing a black bear around the cornfields. And Lewis thought the black bear looked funny. Hmm. And so he goes back and tells his dad, Martin, the older brother, says, saw a bear. And Lewis goes, I don't think it was a bear. I think it was an Indian in a bear skin. Hmm. And it kind of red flagged the family. Well, sure enough, that night they hear something and they're kind of on red alert and they look outside and they see an Indian coming up to him and the dad shoots and kills the Indian. Oh, this isn't when he gets kidnapped. Well, oh, okay. it's connected to that. That brings retribution from the other Native Americans within a couple of weeks or a couple of days. He and his brother, Wetzel, 13, Jacob, 11, are kidnapped, straight up kidnapped by, and that's when he got shot. He was in a cornfield and a bullet grazed his chest. He gets caught and they stay in captivity for two days before he makes a pretty daring escape. And, and he showed a lot of intuition inside of situations with Native Americans, even from when he was young. Like he, they, they had him tethered with like leather straps mm -hmm. and they had him tethered up at night, he and the brother together. And they started moaning about the, the straps being too tight. The guys come over and loosen their straps. Long story short, they escape after the guys are all asleep. This you know, him, sounds like five or six guys. There's a detail about this escape that, that starts really speaking to his sort of coolness and also just kind of the person he was where the Indians had taken his father's rifle. And here he is like at any second, as far as he knows, he's going to get tomahawked or, or, or taken and has the, has the run a gauntlet. He could get killed doing that. Like this guy has no idea. He gets away, but they don't want to leave without recovering their old man's gun. Mm -hmm. And there's like a detail too, that the Indians had moccasins that they were drying by the fire, but they shrunk up. The boys couldn't get the moccasins on their feet and had to go down to the creek, stole the moccasins, but then had to go down to the creek and soak those buckskin not moccasins mm. in order to get them stretched out enough to pull them over to their feet and then take off, mm. right? So rather than running off barefoot, getting free, running off barefoot without the old man's gun, they get free, get their old man's gun, get some footwear, and then yeah. take off. Well, and the story was he had to go back. So they, they escaped and actually left the camp. And then they realized they didn't have shoes. This is the version Allman tells. They Got didn't it. have shoes. They didn't have the gun. And they go. And he and Wetzel sneaks back into the camp and gets the stuff and comes back out, which is risky. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah, like the guy was laying on something. And he had to kind of get it out from under his head. Allman didn't go into that yep. that detail, but that was the foundation, which would be the vow that Lewis Wetzel made as a young boy that he was going to kill every you know, Native American that he came in contact with. Yeah, and not in an, or I don't, it sounds so weird to say in an organized fashion, not with the military, not in support of like military campaigns, not in support of any kind of strategy. It was just like in and of itself. Yeah. Even to kill allies. Stuff that happens in a person's childhood is always an important player in their life. 
whether good or bad, we're formed by our experiences. And I do believe that we have a choice of how we respond to the good and the bad. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from a mental health professional on this stuff. Here's the account of the first time Lewis killed a Native American. As a matter of fact, he killed three. When Lewis was 16 years old, so this is three years after he and his brother Jacob had been captured, they went on a mission with a bunch of adults to retrieve some stolen horses. Mm -hmm. So there were a group of Indians that stole horses. His dad's horse was in the mix. And so they go out. The guy's getting a little shootout with the Indians, and the adults retreat. And Wetzel goes back and is like, what are y'all doing? And they go, well, yada, yada, yada. And he goes, well, I'm going back in. And he, he basically employed a tactic that he used most of his life in certain situations. And that tactic was, they called it, being treed when an in, the, the the Indians would retreat but hide mm-hmm. and be waiting for you. And basically he knew where these Indians were hiding out and he snuck in there and he put his hat on the end of his gun and leaned it out from behind the tree. He knew that they were watching him. And when they shot and hit his hat, they thought they killed him. And so they exposed themselves and he had a loaded musket. So a one-shot musket was a real big deal back in those days because you pretty much had one shot and then you had 45 seconds to two minutes of loading a gun, depending on how fast you were. So they shot, they thought they killed the guy, and then Wetzel lets him get in close, steps out, it's two Indians, shoots one in the chest and takes off running. And what they didn't know and what he became known for was he could reload on the run. And he became famous throughout that part of the world in the Native American tribes for always having his gun loaded. But he could he could load on the run. And so he runs, and the these guys have already shot their bullet. And so he takes after him, and then he runs for however long, and then just turns with a loaded gun and shoots. And the, they'd never seen anything like that. And so he came back with all these grown men. It was like, holy cow, who is this kid? Yep. Came and back with scalps. They, they collected scalps like trophies. Mm-hmm. I don't want to glaze over the act of scalping a dead enemy. I think it's easy to go numb to the brutality of the act. Maybe it's Hollywood, books, I don't know. But scalping started in Native American warfare, and then as Europeans got involved, many took up the practice. Perhaps it was unrestrained retribution, or maybe it was to communicate with their enemies in a way that they could understand. Anyhow, the 16-year-old Wetzel took three scalps that day by what would become known as Wetzel Spring near St. Clairsville, Ohio. Lewis's success in guerrilla warfare was that he could load his gun extremely quickly. Chip Gross is from the Ohio Valley. He's a retired game warden, authored multiple books, and has had over 1,000 of his articles published about hunting, shooting, and frontiersmen. Years ago, he took an interest in Lewis Wetzel, and here he'll give us a critical detail of how he was able to reload so fast. Now, here's another wilderness skill that he had, and not many other frontiersmen had it. Simon Kenton could do it, a few others could do it, but reloading on the run. Mm. And he was very, very good at this. And what he would do, he he would take two or three uh, lead bullets 
and actually put them in his mouth, believe it or not. Now, this is before they knew much about lead poisoning, I'm sure, but he didn't seem to care. Yeah. He would carry these extra bullets in his mouth, and that would help him reload much quicker on the run. Some historians in the past have written that Lewis got lead poisoning from all the mouth bullet stuff, and it turned him into a madman. Though that can't be healthy, I don't think that's the only culprit to his obsession with killing. Here's Chip with more on loading a musket fast. Once the firearm is empty, what you have to do is you have to pour powder down the barrel. And then so that's you have, step one. That's step one. Step two is then you have to take uh, a bullet, which is a round ball, lead ball, and drive it down against that powder with a ramrod. And then the last step is to take a small amount of powder and put it in the pan, the firing pan. That's not easy to do. And then you have to hope that everything is going to work when you pull the trigger. Because a lot yeah. of times a gun might fire, call a flash in the pan, but the uh, powder in the barrel doesn't go off. Yeah. And sometimes that did, that did happen with him. And then you're down to hand-to-hand combat. And he was good at that, too. He had all the wilderness skills. You know, it's interesting now we're all used to firearms and we're used to firearms that shoot cartridges that are essentially fail-proof. Correct. You just pull the trigger and a gun goes yep. off. That, yep. That's no longer a question. But during this time period, a warrior's world was dominated by this possibility that his gun wouldn't go off when he absolutely needed it to, number yep. one. Yep. And then number two, he was dominated by this limitation of time. You get one shot, boom, boom. And then you have to go through a pretty detailed sequence of events to get it loaded again. Exactly. And so that was actually a tactic of Wetzel in his fighting was that he could reload so quick that the Indians knew that if a guy shot, there was a span of time mm-hmm. when he couldn't shoot again mm-hmm. and they would rush in. They would yeah. they would draw the volley of their, their enemies mm-hmm. and then they would say, okay, now we've got a minute Correct. Before they can reload, yep. and we're going to go in and take them hand to hand or yep. whatever. Yep. And that's where Lewis Wetzel, I mean, that was his trick, mm-hmm. was that he exactly he could, I mean, I, it'd be interesting to actually have the data on it. Well, like I'd love how, to see it. Yeah, I mean, how, could he do it, yeah, could he do quickly, it twice quickly as quick? Yeah. Could yeah. he do it I don't know. in 25% of the time? Know. Lewis being able to reload his gun fast was probably his most valued skill. I want to read you an excerpt from the book, The Life and Times of Lewis Wetzel by C.B. Allman. This book was published in 1931. At the age of 17, Wetzel may be said to have entered on his life's work, that of hunting Indians. The warfare with the Reds was not restrained by proclamations or politicians. It was a free fight. Anybody could enter and keep at it as long as he liked. The rules were simple and consisted of get his scalp. Wessel was a stern, sober, silent sort of person, never boasting of his exploits, but pursuing his way with the tenacity which made his name as much feared by the foe as they were hated by him. He shunned the company of other people and was never so content as when roaming the forest like a wild animal. Wetzel's picturesque appearance joined with his growing reputation for daring added to his popularity with border folks. Five foot ten inches tall, unusually strong and well-developed in arms and shoulders, slight and active of limb, with piercing black eyes, 
scowling brow and black hair, which when combed out hung to his knees. This ranger was the object of much approval on part of the young ladies at the settlement. Graceful, morose, fascinating, and blind to their charms, the dashing youth doubtless wreaked considerable havoc among the feminine hearts not recorded by tradition or listed in printed tales of the frontier. His true love was the long trail and the thrill of the encounter. End of quote. The intel that we have about Wetzel is sparse, and many authors have published contradicting stories. There are three main books about Wetzel that I found. One is C.B. Allman's book, The Life and Times of Lewis Wetzel, which I thought was pretty good. Another by Robert Myers, published in 1890, was called Lewis Wetzel, which, honestly, I didn't think was that well written. Sorry, man. And the latest was in 1996, called That Dark and Bloody River, by the famed author Alan Eckhart. It's not all about Wetzel, but he talks about the Wetzel brothers. Lastly, the author who's attributed with making Lewis's nickname The Deathwind famous was a novelist named Zane Grey, which in his book, The Spirit of the Border, used the nickname because Gray's novels, which were fiction, used the Wetzel brothers as characters, which is kind of confusing. So it's not 100% clear where the nickname came from, but a poem called The Ballad of Lewis Wetzel, written by Glenn Baker, gave me the only true citation of the death wind that I could find. Chip is a native Ohioan, and he has studied Wetzel a lot, and here's him describing what he knows about the nickname, the Deathwind. And uh, the Deathwind name was kind of interesting, because where that comes from is, you probably know, if you take a muzzle-loading rifle and you blow over the end of the barrel, you get kind of a hollow sound, like blowing over uh, a bottle, you know, empty Mm. bottle, that type of thing. And he would he would use that to mess with the Indians. If he got up to a group of Indians, maybe an Indian camp, and there was too many for them for him to take on, he would get within hearing distance and he would blow across the top of that muzzle to let them know, I'm here, you know, and I may be coming for you tonight. It may be the next night. It may be down the road, you know, mm. two or three months. And so that's where death wind comes. Mm. And uh, another part, Uh, He grew his hair very long. He was a big man, grew his hair, which was totally black, as long as he could, which was knee length. And uh, he was basically taunting the Indians, come take it from me if you can. Wow. And none ever did. It's striking to imagine a buckskin frontiersman with coal black hair down to his calves. And apparently he wore his hair this long until his death. Glenn Baker's poem agrees with Chip's version of what Deathwind means. But I've heard three possible sources of the nickname. Number one, being blown over the end of a muzzle to intimidate Indians. Number two, someone inferred that he had a trademark scream that he made when he killed an Indian, and the escapees said it was like a Deathwind. Lastly, some have thought it just meant he swept quietly through the woods, dealing out death like a death wind. Here's Steve on Lewis's start as an Indian scout. At age 17, he became a full-time Indian scout. It was like an employment. I don't know how he got Yeah, the, the settlements would have, you know, you hear him described as militia. 
And then there was, so you had like these informal militias. Then you had Rangers, which were more tightly like, like Samuel Brady, who was a contemporary of Lewis Wetzel, um, who was under employ of the army, like under employ with the army, but ran a group of frontiersmen who were known okay. as Rangers. But these were guys who were just on the lookout for raiding parties. And the thing they might do is they might just travel the North Shore or the South Shore of the Ohio and pick up tracks going one way, follow those tracks to see if they had stolen anything, intercept tracks of Indians that were coming south and alert villages, alert settlements of what's coming. If there was were kidnappings or burning of buildings, they might get on the trail and follow to go get retribution. And at any given time, there were any number, any small collection of these groups out doing like the scouting or these groups, these frontiers might also ally themselves with the military. And when the military is going to do like a formal campaign, they're out ahead to find where they're camped to make sure they don't fall into ambushes. Um, yeah. The same like, like a, in, in Vietnam, the long range reconnaissance patrollers. Yeah. They were just out in the jungle listening, looking, gathering intelligence. When you understand that too, it helps to understand why these guys, it gives some context for why they were doing what they were doing and why that these guys would be potential folk heroes, Mm -hmm. not even folk heroes, like just legitimate cultural heroes because they were the ones that were protecting, quote unquote, you know, these white settlements. Yeah, first line of defense. Yeah. And also delivered... Uh, imagine you're you're a, a, a Euro-American, you're a white settler at this time. Your child's abducted and someone delivers your child back to you. I mean, that's one of the things that made Boone famous. It's the most kind of like iconic hero tale. Oh, yeah. Wetzel never looked back after becoming an Indian scout. Here we'll learn some of his exploits that made him a folk hero of the region amongst the whites. Wetzel... There's two times that he was documented on having saved somebody's wife. Mm-hmm. And it was the same story both times. He's out hunting with somebody or traveling with a man. And the woman was back home, you know, with the family. Two different times. He went back with the guy and found the cabin burned and the family gone. And usually the usually the women were spared and the children. Also painting an idea for just the brutality of the era. The the first guy, his last name was Tush. He was hunting with, it was a young guy. And I don't even think they had kids, but there was an extended family there with some men and the man's new wife. And they, they, they're going to have dinner. You know, I mean, they're like coming home and they get there and they see smoke and they come and they find the dead bodies of all the men scattered about and the hogs had gotten loose. They're, they're tame hogs mm. and had eaten the bodies, like had just mangled the bodies. And then, but the woman is missing. And Lewis Wetzel, I mean, it sounds like a movie. You know, Lewis Wetzel finds the tracks of a size six woman's shoe going off with the moccasins, you know. And so they know that she's alive. And so it takes them two days, but they catch them and kill the Indians and save the lady. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was a common story. 
As a parent, nothing keeps me up at night more than the idea of something happening to my children. But if something happens to me and I'm not around to protect them, that's a true nightmare. Having term life insurance for myself is crucial because I can rest easier knowing my children and loved ones can have some financial support even if I'm not there. That's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. Having life insurance just gives me that extra confidence throughout the day knowing that my family will be financially cared for if something bad happened to me. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You can be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash bear. That's meetfabric.com slash bear. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash bear. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. It's hard for us to put ourselves into the shoes of people who lived in an era with such brutality. Here, Chip will tell us a story showing us that Lewis's killing of Indians was motivated by far more than it being his employment. He was cold-blooded.
there was a time he was living in the Marietta area, which Marietta is a town right on the Ohio River. It's the oldest town in Ohio. I think it's the oldest town in Northwest Territory. At one point, the people there were getting tired of the Indian Wars and so forth, and they decided, we have to try and, and settle this, you know, make a treaty or do something. So they got a hold of a bunch of tribes, and they said, let's get together. Let's, let's have a, a peace of about three months, and the tribes agreed. And they camped about two miles north of the river and would walk back and forth uh, to Marietta for meetings and that kind of thing. Well, there was one Seneca chief who always walked by himself, which was not good. Guess who was living there and noticed this? Lewis. And Lewis knew that these were, you know, not hostile Indians at this time, but he didn't care. So at one, one day, he lays for this chief, and as soon as he got within, you know, 50 yards, he steps out from cover, didn't say anything, just pulls his rifle up and shoots and, and hits him in the chest. Of course, the chief goes down, he runs up, he scouts him, runs off, and everybody knows who it was. Lewis Woods. This guy had long black hair, he had a particular colored hat, blah, blah, blah. So they go grab Lewis, they put him on trial, and they bluntly ask him, Lewis, did you, did you kill this Indian? Yes, I did. And he, he wasn't, didn't feel guilty about it, no remorse, no nothing. So the judgment was, uh, well, you're, you're going to hang for this. What I haven't told you yet is that this wasn't the first time that Lewis killed an emissary of peace. In 1781, Lewis Tomahawk, the Delaware chief that was involved in peace talks, but the war combined with weak backwoods justice meant that nothing was done to Lewis. The murder Chip told us about took place in 1789, and Lewis was sentenced to hang for the murder of the Seneca chief to Gunta. However, he broke out of jail two consecutive times and was recaptured, but was ultimately released and functionally acquitted of the murder when the famous backwoodsman, Simon Kenton, brought a large gang of ruffians to the jail and demanded Wetzel be let free or they'd take him by force. So they let him go. Kenton coming to Wetzel's aid shows the favorable reputation that he had in the region. This wouldn't be the last time that Wetzel ended up in jail, though. Here's Chip with more insight into Wetzel's tactics for killing that showed his brutality and the mind frame he had. And, and this is interesting, too. I think Lewis was, at times, just over the edge. You, know, you can be courageous, but you can also be stupid sometimes. And it just, he got to the point where he didn't care. If he was outnumbered two or three to one, he'd figure out a way to, to kill those Indians. And there's several times where he was uh, tracking Indians and might come across a group of just two or three. So he figured out that instead of just charging in the camp, just let them go to sleep. You're gonna, they're going to go to sleep sooner or later. And there's several times this story is told when after they uh, were asleep, he would slip in there with knife in one hand and tomahawk in the other and drive the knife into the heart of one, tomahawk the other. And if the third one heard something and jumped up, he'd get the same thing, and he would kill all three. I mean, he was that obsessed with, with killing Indians, and he was that good at it. Uh, it. It's scary to talk about. He was very much a, a warrior. You know, he really was. 
and uh, and again there was no there was no guilt in his mind there was no regret it was just I've, I've got to do this and he continued doing it basically until until the day he died I heard them mention and and this put it into context for me is that he viewed killing an Indian no different than he viewed killing a bear which is a kind of a wild thought yeah the cultures were so different that they, a lot of people back at that time, Wetzel probably included, did not think of Indians as human beings. I don't know how you can do that, and we right. certainly today aren't there. But there was a time in history when people thought that, that they're not humans. They're like us, but they're not humans, so we can, we can go ahead and kill them. Yeah. And it's, it's hard for us in 2022 to put our mind there. Well, really, I mean, it's a trend inside of human nature. And it makes it easier to kill your enemy if you think they're not human. That's mm. part of the psychological aspect of it. Mm. If that person is not a person and they're a bear, that, that's a lot easier. Yeah, it's almost but like it, a coping mechanism exactly, for guilt. Exactly. Yeah. And you build that into your culture, and, and your dad tells you that. Correct. And his and dad you, told him that. And from it's, it's, the time you're young, you're taught that, you know. Yeah. And then the more you do it, the less you're bothered by it. The human story is wrought with tragedy. And in North America, the dehumanization of indigenous people is one that happened here. But to be historically accurate... Many Native American ideologies didn't believe the white man to be fully human either. The Shawnees believed that whites were of a lesser order and were created by an inferior god to the one that made them. And, in turn, they were often extremely brutal towards the white interlopers who invaded and took over their ancestral lands. It was a bloody and wild time period. I think this would be a good time to talk briefly about some of the other Wetzel brothers because you're going to need to just know they were there. Lewis's older brother, Martin, was the second most notorious of the brothers. He once executed 16 native captives with his tomahawk, and he once snuck up behind an Indian in the midst of a peace negotiation and literally split his skull with a tomahawk. Martin was once captured by Native Americans and was their captive for over a year. And by deceit, he gained their trust and then escaped after murdering one by one the three Indians he was hunting with. John Wetzel Jr., another brother, he once infiltrated an Indian village by dressing like an Indian. He stayed undercover for several days before he murdered two Indians outside the village and later complained about only bringing home two scalps. All the Wetzel brothers were involved in this war and in murdering Indians. Now let's talk about a critical moment in the Wetzel brothers' young adult life. The, the biggest marker in understanding who Louis Wetzel was and all the Wetzel brothers and why they did what they did was when their father was killed. Mm -hmm. And it was in 1787, and it was... Lewis, his brother Martin, his brother George, and his dad. So four Wetzels, the father and three sons. They're in a canoe on the Ohio River or some type of boat on the Ohio River. And they get ambushed from the bank for no apparent reason and essentially kill John Wetzel Sr. and George Wetzel. And so the two that are alive are Martin and Lewis. And they survive in kind of a wild story of jumping in the water and being on the backside of the boat. And they go and 
make retribution for their father and kill a couple of the Indians that were part of this. And they say that that was, that was the thing that solidified his vow. So he's made this vow when he was a young boy after being captured when he was 13. He becomes a scout when he's 17. And then at 23, his dad and brother get killed in front of him. They bury him in a shallow grave on the banks of the Ohio River in hickory bark coffins. So that, that, that like solidified the next 20 years of his life before he died of, of he was just going to kill everybody that he could find. This is a great place to try to venture into the mind of Lewis Wetzel. Zach Newcomb is a clinical social worker, but he has also served as the clinical director of a psychiatric hospital. He spent his career in the mental health field, and I wanted to get some clarity on the possible conditions of somebody with a resume like Wetzel. And, yep, Zach is my brother, my older brother. You know, as you describe for me Wetzel and his life, a couple things pop out that, would, that I would want to explore deeper. One would be his, the initial childhood trauma that he experienced. You've got to go there. So me as a, as a clinician, I'm going to, you know, PTSD is something that's going to be strong on my radar. Mm-hmm. Honestly, with trauma like that, it, it would be hard for me to believe that there's not PTSD there, right? Sure. I mean, I mean that's pretty, you know. Post-traumatic stress. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Yep. From, as a child, being distressed by confrontation with these Indians being kidnapped. Yep, absolutely. That so, just grew through his life, probably. Yep. So you've got that trauma right there, which changes a man. Right. That changes a human being. And then as you described to me, the environment he lived in, which my understanding, I mean, he was basically, that was his profession was to kill Native Americans. And so as you described that to me, the first thing that comes to my mind is, I mean, that's not, that's not an environment that any of us, at least in the U.S., uh, live in today for the most part. I mean, that's a war zone. What you're describing to me is a war zone. Yes. And so... You know, so if you're assessing antisocial personality disorder or, or, or is somebody a sociopath, you know, is a soldier a sociopath for doing what he does in, on the battlefield, mm. right? So those are things you're going to have to take into account. So the context matters. The context matters. The context matters. That's good to know. I asked Zach if he would be able to diagnose Wetzel, and here's what he said after he almost slapped me. So it would be unethical. It is unethical for me to diagnose someone who's not in front of me that mm. I'm not actively assessing. Right? Okay. So when people ask me these things, uh, hey, this character from the past or this, that, and the other, or they're, you know, it happens to me all the time, like, hey, my brother is <laughs> doing these things, yeah. or, or my boyfriend or my girlfriend, are they a psychopath? Yeah. Right. I can kind of look at things, little stories, and they're all kind of anecdotal, right, at this point in time. Yes. And I can say, hey, you know what, if they were coming into my office and I had this information, I can say, you know what, these are the things I'd be looking for. Okay, man. Okay. So it's unethical to go back and diagnose someone that you can't actually speak with. That is good to know. So now let's learn about sociopaths, psychopaths, and how both of these fall under the category of antisocial personality disorder. And people throw around, like you just threw out the like sociopath. Sociopath is not an official diagnosis. It's okay. a, just kind of a, a term to describe a set of behaviors, right? And okay. so sociopath and psychopath fall into the, under the category most of the time of antisocial personality disorder. So what is a sociopath? So if you're looking at sociopath versus psychopath, which is kind of the easiest way to see them. Yep. A sociopath would be somebody who, you know, they lack empathy for others. 
generally speaking, the sociopath is, is aggressive. Like there's a lot, a lot of anger outbursts. There's a lot of aggression. Okay. Mm. The sociopath, they can be uh, demonstrative and, and, and people explosive. can explosive, but also like what I'm trying to get at is people can, uh, you know, enjoy their company to a certain degree because they're, they're wild and crazy be, and fun. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so they could be like almost normal people in some social settings. Oh yeah. Now the psychopath more, the contrast of that would be the psychopath would again, not have the, the emotional connection to people not really feel empathy, but generally speaking, would be able to discern, I'm going to laugh and smile to manipulate this person. But really, they're not laughing and smiling on the inside. That's a psychopath. Yeah, very clinical, very, very unfeeling. So do you think a guy that would have killed this many humans, he could fall under a category of a sociopath? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so somebody like Wetzel could be considered a sociopath. But this is the main source of the problem, this antisocial personality disorder. We need to learn what this is. All right, so antisocial personality disorder. And this is straight from the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic manual. This is straight from the textbook, man. That's right, this is textbook. So somebody, for them to meet that criteria, uh, they have to meet three or more of the following. Okay. Okay. Failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors, as indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest. Hmm. So check, check deceitfulness as indicated by repeated lying, use of aliases or, or conning others for personal profit or pleasure. I would say check. Would you? Okay. You know him more than me. Impulsivity or failure to plan ahead. <laughs> Man, I might fit into that one. <laughs> See that one, at least based on so the stories. Just those, those three things. Well, no, there's more. There's a list of seven here that we'll go down. Okay. Okay. Keep so going. he's got to have at least. Oh, he's got to have at least, at least three of those. Three of the, oh, at least a, three of the seven. He's a shoe in. Now we can't diagnose him because that wouldn't be. Yeah. Ethical. Yeah. We're not going to do it, but this is like a good guideline. right? Gotcha. Irritability and aggressiveness as indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults. Check. See, okay. I mean, he compuls- he, he he killed people just constantly. Yeah, but in the context of war. Yeah. So then reckless disregard for safety of self or others. Check. Consistent irresponsibility is indicated by repeated failure to sustain consistent work behavior or honor financial obligations. Check. Counterfeiting. Check. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lack of remorse, as indicated by being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt, mistreated, or stolen from another. Oh, wow. Triple check. So based on those criteria... Those are the seven? Those are the seven. He only needs three? He only needs three. Well, he for sure had six. This isn't a diagnosis, but these are the things Zach would be looking into if Lewis Wetzel came into his office. So as we move forward... The definition of a serial killer is simply someone who has murdered more than one person. Here are Zach's final thoughts. From everything I'm hearing in our conversation, you very potentially have the labeling of a serial killer. You very potentially have the labeling of a sociopath or somebody with antisocial personality disorder. uh, And you highly likely have some post-traumatic stress disorder. We're going to learn that Wetzel got into some serious trouble with some counterfeit money later in his life. But I think this general checklist is pointing us in the right direction as we try to understand it. What I learned about this antisocial personality disorder is that it's very serious and that really less than 5% of the population could be diagnosed with it. And it doesn't mean that you don't like being in public or don't like talking to people. It actually doesn't mean that at all. 
It means that a person wouldn't comply with the very basic premises of society. And a high percentage of people in prison have this disorder. But let's get back into Wetzel's life and look at the only thing we have, which are the stories that are recorded about him. We're going to tell two stories of cold-blooded, bushwhacking murder that had to do with turkey hunting. But first, Steve will discuss the hazy nature of human storytelling. You know when you were talking about how stories get a little messed up in the Mm -hmm. telling? Yeah. I have a friend who tells me a great story that involves him. Okay, So my buddy Ronnie tells me a story about Ronnie. I then tell my friend a story that happened to Ronnie. A couple years goes by. My friend is talking to Ronnie, (laughs) telling Ronnie a story that happened to me. Toward the end of the story, Ronnie says, wait a minute, that didn't happen to Steve. That's my story. (laughs) Yeah. I bring that up where there's there's like this apocryphal Wetzel story about a Native American who is hunting whites by mimicking the sound of a wild turkey gobbling Mm. and lures and and kills two who are, he's targeting people who are out hunting turkeys in the spring. Wow. He gobbles when they come slipping in, he kills them. Lewis Wetzel gets wind of this, sneaks into the area where he knows this individual is hanging out, throws a rock to make a noise. The individual who's masquerading as a turkey reveals himself to see what the noise was, and Wetzel outsmarts mm. the guy who's outsmarting everybody yeah. and kills him. They called that guy the Gobbler Indian. And it's like, did that really happen? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like so crazy, but also, so it's like a, a perfect story. Allman tells that story, and he, he staked out where he believed this Indian was. He got up in a bluff, and there's actually a photo in mm-hmm. this book of a bluff that is believed to be oh. where he shot the Indian from. I mean, so it's like a place that they think it happened. I know, but it winds up being, it's like, how many adventures does one guy get to have? <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> you know kidding. Well, that, and that's where it just starts to stack up thick. Because listen to this one, Steve. So somehow they knew that there was some Native Americans hunting over in this area and that they were keyed in on turkeys. Uh, Lewis Wetzel has, had killed a turkey the day before, cuts off its foot, its wing bone, and puts it in his pouch, it said. And whether he was using that to turkey hunt, because he was a good hunter too. I mean, he was making a living hunting, essentially. I mean, just for his own food and, you know, when he was in the frontier at least. And, but he knows that there's guys around. And what he does is he takes the track. I'm pretty sure Lyman Draper is the one that recorded this. So it would have been like third hand. Mm -hmm. Like Lewis Wetzel told a guy and that guy told Draper. So, So, you know, it's about as good as we can get. And, Lewis said that he made turkey tracks in a snowbank. So he didn't leave his tracks. He left turkey tracks and went up on the hill, staked out 100 yards away in a clearing. And he made the sound of a fly up, a turkey flying up to roost Mm. by slapping the wing. Yeah. A strategy used by modern turkey turkey hunters, but you use the wing to make the fly down. Right. But the difference between us and them we hunt them in the daylight, and they would hunt them oftentimes, sometimes in the dark. Well, he, he made this the loud sound of a turkey flying up to a roost, mm-hmm. and then he had a wing bone call. And I mean, the guy, 
the, the a Native American appears and starts tracking those tracks, and he shoots him, mm. kills him dead. I mean, so it's wild, you know. These stories, I think you have to take them with a grain of salt, but you know they, they come from, I mean, it, that may be just the way it happened, but it also might have been a, f- a fraction of the truth as well. Yeah. What we know is that in that time, in those years, people were dying by the thousands. Death was just everywhere. Every family was touched directly by death. You could not get through years without seeing dead people laying around. You couldn't get through life without seeing mutilated corpses. You couldn't. Yeah. So was every one of these little murder incidents or whatever you said, like, is it like, I don't know. But what we do know, there was a lot of people killing a lot of people during those years in that part of the country. Think about being in the spring turkey woods, hearing a gobble, and trying to decide if somebody's trying to lure you in to kill you. That is next level. Here's a suite of stories that continued to paint a picture of Wetzel's wild life. There's a story of once of him escaping from Indians, Swim. He swam the Ohio River a lot. Yeah. You know, Wheeling, West Virginia, was right on the edge of the Ohio River. And then the Ohio Territory was where a bunch of the stuff was going down. Multiple times he swam the Ohio River in bad conditions. And once he and a buddy escaped, they had one horse. They The buddy takes the horse for whatever reason. I guess he was riding it. The horse takes him across the Ohio River swimming. Wetzel has to swim. And, I mean, they're fleeing for their life. And he gets across. It's in the dead of winter. And he's dying of hypothermia. And the story is they kill the horse, split it down the middle. Wetzel crawls in the horse and survives hypothermia inside the horse. Hmm. That's kind of a throwback to the old, you know, you wonder where the guys at Star Wars got that. Well, when they killed I know, the, but there's, there's, there's accounts as well of hide hunters, buffalo hide hunters surviving storms inside, you know, inside the abdominal cavities of buffalo they kill. Hmm. They didn't get it from Star Wars. Well, I, I'm saying the Star <laughs> Wars guy got it. Star Wars, yeah. was it Spielberg? Yeah. He, he got it from those boys. Okay. In my knowledge of Wetzel, this was his most cold-blooded move ever. So in his adult life, Lewis was captured by Indians, and he, he stayed with them for some period of time. And they capture him, and they know who he is. And interestingly, inside of Native American culture, if they capture a great warrior, even from the enemy, they treat him different. You know, I mean, like you'd think with us, it might be like, kill him immediately. Not good, different always, because you know the story of Jacob Greathouse, him and his wife. Mm-mm. Oh, Jacob Greathouse, another bad, very much in the vein, very much in the vein of Wetzel. Jacob Greathouse commits some atrocities. And when they caught him, they took him and his wife and they opened their bellies right above the pubic line, pulled out the lower intestine, tied it to a sapling, and made him go round and round in circles. The wife died pretty young, but they say Jacob Greyhouse went so far that he pulled his own stomach out before he died. Because he had done some bad stuff, mm. and they knew him, and he Brutal. paid for the bad things he did. In his wow. case, just unprovoked, unprovoked killing of friendly people. Yeah. Well, in the account that is told by Wetzel because he was the only one there they are trying to figure out what to do with him because they've got a real trophy in on their minds this is a great warrior 
and he can hear him and he can speak Delaware and he can speak multiple Native American languages fairly well. So he, he can understand what they're saying. And they say, well, we're going to burn him at the stake tomorrow. Pretty much that's what they decide. But there was a war chief that didn't like that idea. And in the night came and turned Wetzel loose, freed him and actually gave him a gun and gave him a horse. And in his mind, a great warrior, even if it was a warrior against his own people, didn't deserve to die that way. What does Wetzel do? Shoots the guy Hmm. that's turned him loose. That's cold-blooded, brother. If you remember, I mentioned that Lewis and his family participated in the Revolutionary War. Here's a war story. This is an interesting story. This is a Revolutionary War story. Martin and Lewis are at Fort Beeler in West Virginia. They were in a log fort. The fort was being attacked by Native Americans, which they were on the side of the British. Yeah. And so, and and there was, they saw where some guys were digging a tunnel under the wall. And Lewis is standing there with his tomahawk, and the first guy makes it under the wall, tomahawks him in the head. They go ahead and pull him through under the wall. Well, the, the Indian behind that guy just sees his feet go under the wall. And there's a war going on, so they can't hear much. And there's a thick wall there. Well, the second Indian goes under the wall, comes up. There's Lewis Wetzel. Walk. Hits him. Kills him. They kill six guys mm. crawling under the wall and just stacking the bodies before they finally figured out what was, you know, I don't know, they quit coming under the wall. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Brutal. There are just too many stories to tell about Wetzel, but I can't take a swing at telling you about his life without telling you about this one. He ended up in Louisiana and got involved in this counterfeiting money scam. Some say he got romantically involved with a Spanish officer's wife and was framed. I would imagine the black locks down to his calves would have been hard to look away from for some women. But that's neither here nor there. But however it went down, he went to prison twice for counterfeit money. However, just like the first time he went to prison, he found a way to get out. But the wild thing is, is so the second time that he escaped from confinement, and he was in a real prison at this time, was he got someone on the outside to bribe the head of the prison, paid him money. And Lewis Wetzel fakes being sick and fakes his own death. And they carry him out in a coffin. Like hmm. Lewis Wetzel's dead. I mean, the prison is like, Wetzel's dead. They're carrying him out in a pine box. I would have said, good. <laughs> yeah, they probably did. <laughs> and then he gets out and escapes. And it's just, I mean, that's pretty bizarre. But as far as I can tell, that is like a fairly well-documented yeah. thing that happened. Man, the coffin prison escape, that's classic, man. If I'm ever wrongfully imprisoned, and if I am, you guys will probably hear about it, I'm going to remember this little stunt. With all the outlawing talk of late on this bear grease, I might need to be thinking ahead. I still think Brent Reeves is after me. But hey, we're all friends here, and y'all are the only ones who know about this, so y'all be looking for me walking down the side of the road. (laughs) Here's Chip with some deep thoughts. What do you make of the idea that at the time he was a hero 
he was a hero of the frontier. Mm-hmm. But then now we look back at him and, and we see that he was uh, essentially a serial killer, was killing Native Americans for sport. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do we, what do you make of that? Let me say this, that it's very difficult for us now in modern times to put ourselves back on the frontier. And I make this statement in one of my stories. I said, and again, I said, if he were alive today, he would be labeled a serial killer. But to early pioneers living in the upper Ohio River Valley in the late 1700s, he was considered an avenger because they were losing family, friends to Indians, and they didn't know how to stop it. Yeah. The only way they could stop it is move back east, and that's what the, where they came from. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted yeah. the land that was here. They wanted to live here. And so for those families, here's a guy out front that is killing the people that are killing us. Yeah. So that's the way they looked at it. And it was know? a time period of significant warfare and conflict. Oh, constant. So constant, it wasn't constant. it wasn't today to think of all these people dying and houses being burned down and I mean it Wetzel so many times told stories or there were stories involved of his peers being their their houses being burned down their families being murdered mm-hmm. And I mean, think about that today. Like, if that happened one time in my life, it'd be a big deal. Oh, it, it yeah. would. I'd write a book about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But how traumatizing that would be, and how that would affect society, create instability. Yeah. I mean, like internal personal crisis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, here we've had our gas prices are you know five dollars a gallon, and people are nervous and getting crazy. Well, what if there was a pretty good chance that your house at some point in your life was going to be burned down and a fair chance that your family might even be murdered? Like what, who would you then look up to? Sure. Who would you look to for security? And here's this guy that is taking on the threat. And so, yeah, I'm not justifying it. I'm just trying to make sense of it. But you're right. If we were back in those times, our heroes back then would be a lot different than they are now. Our heroes now are sports figures, you know, people like that. That wouldn't have been the case back then. Because those people were dealing with life and death every day. I like what you said there, that our heroes are sports figures today. Back then, they would have been... Frontiersmen. We're always looking for heroes, aren't we? Oh, yeah. That's human nature. Here's Steve with his final synopsis of Wetzel and the time period he lived in. A thing I think about with Wetzel is informed by our understanding now of what happens to veterans, first responders, law enforcement individuals who are just subjected to these like really traumatic experiences. We're now very versed in this idea of, of PTSD. Um mm. I know that my own father from his experiences in the war suffered from PTSD, right? I think that some sort of future historian, some kind of future like physician slash historian individual will someday look at like, how was all of that death and violence? To what extent was it scrambling the brain of all those people involved? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you now came and said, if you're talking about a guy down the road, right? Oh, he was shot, kidnapped, and shot, escaped, watched his father die, watched his brother die. Yeah. Lost all of his family to all this bloodshed. His siblings were kidnapped. And then you learn that he went on to be a mass murderer, a serial killer. What would be the first thing that would come out of your mouth? Figured. Yeah. 
and it, and it's it, it's like when you if you grow up watching like westerns, you know, and I know you have and I have and war movies with the the, the heroes are celebrated for their indifference to it, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You shoot the yeah, bad guy down and go have a drink, play some cards. Yeah, but there there must have just been a lot of uh. I don't like to run around, you know, I'm not one of the people that runs around like attributing everything around me to some version of childhood trauma. Right. But this isn't that. Mm, This is dismembered, hog-eaten, tomahawked bodies, man, of relatives and stuff. On both sides of this, let's call it a war, just mass, I mean, ruthless, inhumane, atrocities right and it's like to what degree was all that just fueling itself mm. like to what degree were all these people uh or many of these people just kind of uh you know suffering from these things that like it's unimaginable to us now yeah had to have scrambled their brains up had to have they were tougher than us but how tough can you be man <laughs> you know yeah humans weren't supposed to live that way well that's the thing i that's that's the part is i think about all the time Lewis Wetzel, the death wind himself, ended up near Natchez, Mississippi and died at his cousin's house in 1808 at the age of 45, probably from yellow fever. He was buried in Mississippi, but in 1942, 134 years after his death, they exhumed his grave and moved his remains back to McCreary Cemetery in Marshall County, West Virginia. That's a bold move. They claimed his calf-length hair was still visible and that there was a musket lying beside him in the coffin. This grave moving was likely connected to the author Zane Gray reigniting an interest in the old frontiersman and then a bunch of these other guys writing about him. Man, we're going to have to start talking about some light-hearted stuff on the Bear Grease podcast to pull ourselves out of the dark ditch that we found ourselves in. As a matter of fact, the next episode is going to be a deep dive into the life of Mr. Rogers. Or I guess we could just move on and know that we've all come from a dark and bloody past that's full of some wild stuff. The wild nature, physical hardship, and brutality of the lives of those on the American frontier continue to put my life in modern times into perspective. Thanks so much for listening to Bear Grease. I feel like a giant monkey is off my back now that Steve has his podcast on the death wind. Hey, be sure to check out TheMeatEater.com for all kinds of hunting, camping and outdoor apparel stuff you could even get a super cool bear grease or believer hat there and thanks again for listening and have a great week this show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about 
going to the gym on a regimented schedule, and it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to customers is simple. Gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com slash BEARGREASE to learn more.